four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Space Between Podcast. I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Joy Natolo, and our wonderful, renowned guest, Gregory Lupkin. Um, first and foremost, I want to welcome you guys with uh, just a breath for us today. Um, take a breath, um, just to honor the moment. There we go. Um, Greg, I, 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 I did my due diligence on the research side of things, and I, I found so many interesting things about your life. But first and foremost, um, where you're from um, and, you know, what's your background as far as, like, how did you become all these different things? And um, I just want to start there. Where are you from and what's your background? Like, how did you get into all this stuff? <laughs> wow, that, that's going to take the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... Um, There are a bunch of different places that I, I traveled through on this journey. started actually in Kansas City, Missouri, in the heartland of America. I mm-hmm. uh, grew up mostly New England and, uh, and some in, in Michigan, so sort of a little Midwestern stabilizing of that, you know, Eastern speed and action. <laughs> and uh, got my college degree in Scotland, right? So I can speak with your Scottish accent. <laughs> it might be hard for the listeners to quite get through the thickness of that. Um, got a PhD at Berkeley, and that led me to my professor phase, mm-hmm. so first career, and did that for a while doing medieval history. There's nothing less practical than medieval history. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, if you do poetry, you can sell it, right? Yeah. Nobody's buying medieval history. <laughs> anyway, you know, just maybe a consultant on Game of Thrones or something. But, um, but then because it was not practical, and mm. I had a family that I wanted to uh, help give my children some financial s- stability, so I decided it was time to get a real job, and I went back to law school. So, so How old you, are you? you? 41. Huh. 41 years old. No, well. <laughs> <laughs> and you went to Harvard. 41, 41 years old. I went to Harvard Law School. So, yeah. so here's my question. Here's my question. What was the, what did you feel going through the process of, of, of like, at 41, mm-hmm. of, like, getting back into college, and like, going that route again? What did you feel? Well, it's like, it's like a lot of things. I mean, it's just when you have to do it, you just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was a little weird because I just spent 10 years being in front of the classroom, being the guy in charge, mm-hmm. telling everybody, you know, what they needed to know and what to do. And then suddenly I'm one of the guys sitting in the little numbered seat and the professor's <laughs> pointing at me and saying, answer this question. And <laughs> right. it's like, all right, well, let's, let's you know, that, that, there's some humbleness to add into the mix. But, yeah, for sure. But uh, no, it was just like... You know, I, I wanted to I, I wanted to get there was somewhere, you mm-hmm. know, I had a goal and this was the path I had to take to get to that goal. And that was it. And, you know, I had a lot of great classmates and it was interesting to be there. I learned a lot of things and I was really busy. I had to work on the side as well as everything else, three children in the house. So was one you know, of I didn't have time to get into my head about anything, you know. What was the most interesting job you had during that time when you were like going to law school, figuring things out? What was it? What were the jobs that you took up? Well, all the jobs I had when I was in law school actually were doing research for professors. Hmm. So different things, you know, that that's like digging out stuff about. I mean, the most interesting thing actually was for a professor who wanted to write a book about the origins of the American Constitution. Hmm. And he had this theory about how it worked and how it developed and how it got to be the way it finally was. And because I had a history background, mm-hmm. you know, he trusted me to be able to do some historical research about that, which I went ahead and did and found out he was wrong. Mm. And that his theory was was not correct, and I told him so. And 
amazingly enough, he actually accepted it and said, okay, well, the, the theory has to change because it doesn't fit the facts. And so I had a lot of respect for him for that. Um, he was somebody whose politics I did not agree with at all. And I was a little bit worried that he was just going to override the facts and just go with his ideology. But in fact, he had integrity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so when he wrote, in the end, he actually got appointed to the Supreme Court of the state of Massachusetts while I was there. And, and he had to drop finishing the book and just made it an article. Mm-hmm. But his article, you know, used the material that I gave him and gave me credit. And mm. I felt like, okay, well, that was, that was good. And, and furthermore, I got paid. Not mm. much, but, you know. Every little bit helps when you're trying to feed your children. I've, trust me, I don't have kids, but I understand. Oh, yeah. um, I understand. Now, what what led you to discovering um, in Buddhism? Because I know that that's a big part. You're, you've been practicing Buddhism for 33 years, and that's a big part of your life and a big part of your 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 person. Um, so, how did you discover it? Why? Um, and, and like, what was a what was a crowning moment when you like realized that Buddhism was something that you not only needed but it was something that you are just inherently a part of. Did you, did you feel, I know that you did martial arts. Did, did, was that a bridge or a, a path for you to, to segue into? Wait, you did martial, you, you used to like, what, 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 I mean, what kind of martial arts are we talking? Uh, I practiced Aikido. Ooh. And that was, that, that was in fact the bridge. And because uh. I, I went through a period, uh, I was writing my dissertation and uh, lots of interesting stuff happening in my life, which uh, put that on some other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe go to the dark. I want to ask you about that. <laughs> uh, can, can I ask you about that? Well, not right now. <laughs> I got to finish this question first. Right. Anyway, um, but I, I really uh, had a, a deep sense that I had not lived my life in the way that I needed to go about it. That I, mm-hmm. I really had to kind of reset the way I thought about what I did, and um, so I started exploring different things. And at some point, a friend of mine said, well, you know, it might be good to take up a martial art that might help you kind of synchronize and align mm-hmm. your mind and your body and your spirit. Mm. And, uh, you know, I did some research, figured, you know, Aikido is, is maybe the least aggressive martial art that actually involves contact between people. You know, it, it's, it's where the emphasis is not on attack, but on defense and on harmonizing your emotions like with those motion. of the other person. And I thought, oh, that sounds probably like a good approach. So I'm like getting out there trying to kill people. And, uh, and I shopped around, you know, looking for a place that seemed legitimate and mm-hmm. solid and found one that was also practicing Zen meditation as part of what they did. And I thought, yeah, they, they got to be legit. You know, they do Zen meditation with their Aikido. I mean, really, they, you know, they, and, and so it turned out that there was really serious meditation activity and that's where I began but it was so harsh I mean that particular style was so harsh the our sensei it was this 30 something Japanese who had like trained at Aikido World Headquarters and then come to the U.S. to bring civilization to the barbarians (laughs) 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 and he was also this Zen teacher from this really harsh Rinzai Zen tradition so like if we were meditating and like he would make us sit perfectly still and if we moved he'd yell at us <sighs> don't move but, but really loud i don't want to do that into the mic and you know and then we start to fall asleep and then he'd say wake up <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah it was brutal you'll um, never forget him sorry yeah. you'll never forget ever him. no no never forget him right but i also felt like okay well if that's what it takes to achieve i don't know what enlightenment is but if it requires this kind of behavior to reach enlightenment it's going to take me like 
many lifetimes <laughs> and I may not make it at all. You know, I may just not make the cut. I feel you. Um, so um, uh, that was in the San Francisco Bay Area and I moved to the East Coast and I couldn't find a place that had meditation and the Aikido together. So I found there's a great place to do Aikido in, in Cambridge, Mass. But, but I was looking for a place to practice meditation and a friend of mine recommended me to something which was basically the Boston uh, Shambhala Meditation Center. And that worked a lot better for me. Now and what, what, what is Shambhala? What, and so what is that? Uh, yeah, Shambhala, funny that you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> Aha! Aha! Aha. Yeah. So Shambhala uh, Meditation Center is a part of a, a global organization called Shambhala, <laughs> which um, was founded by a Tibetan realized master, a, a, a master meditator mm -hmm. and, and a great teacher, someone who in the Tibetan tradition is considered a Mahasiddha, you know, a, a person who can do great magic mm. and, and a person of great power to, excuse me, bring, um, bring clarity, bring wisdom uh, to many people. And, uh, and when he was 19 years old, he had to leave Tibet because the Chinese had invaded, and mm -hmm. it was a very difficult passage over the Himalayas with a lot of people, most of whom didn't make it, mm -hmm. and uh, ended up in a refugee camp in India. And from there, um, just opened out a life that became part of the Western world. And this is Chugim Trungpa, um, referred to often as Trungpa Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. Rinpoche is a, an honorific term, literally means precious one. <laughs> but it's what's applied basically to any kind of great teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, and uh, you know reincarnated teachers are called tulkus mm -hmm. the tulku is the reincarnation being mm -hmm. um, and most tulkus are Rinpoche's because it's like those are the people who really are so valuable you want them back <laughs> and you want them to keep coming back and so Chugim Trungpa was the 11th Trungpa tulku so he, this was the 11th time that there had been a Trungpa mm -hmm. Rinpoche. And he believed something that nobody else in the Tibetan uh, refugee community believed, which is that the most important thing about his Buddhist teaching mm -hmm. was not to just maintain what the Tibetans already had and try to give them a place to continue what they were doing, but rather to bring that teaching to the West, mm. actually bring it to the rest of the world and get you know, Americans and Britons and Canadians and Frenchmen and so forth to be able to enter into this path. And uh, he went to he went to England. He got a, a scholarship to Oxford, mm. and he got a, a degree in comparative religion at Oxford University. And then he he and a couple of his colleagues started the first uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation center in the West, in Scotland. But they had a disagreement because his, his colleagues felt like, no, we want this to be a center for Tibetans to come and mm -hmm. do their thing. And Where's he said, no, I, I want to teach people who live here. Mm -hmm. they need to, they're the ones who need to hear this. Mm -hmm. And so basically he found that that wasn't working for him. He went to the U.S. Um, and started teaching in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And then he was invited to sort of take the uh, sort of seat at the head of a... a community like a commune up in northeastern Vermont mm -hmm. which became his first like rural retreat center and he made his headquarters in, in Boulder and he was a he was like the bad boy of spirituality I mean 
Kind well, yeah. I mean, in the sense that that yeah, he had he, he was fearless. You know, he didn't care what people thought of him, mm. and but what he did care about was he cared that people could hear what he had to say, mm. and that it could actually penetrate to their hearts and their minds, and so he founded a community which started out being more teaching traditional Tibetan Buddhism, but after uh, several years. Um, he brought in teachings which were very personally important in his view, which are the Shambhala teachings. And Shambhala is a, it's a Tibetan legend which was first known in the, in the Western world under the name Shangri-La. Mm. I've heard of that. And, I've heard of that. And the, the, the legend is that there's a, there's a kingdom somewhere, somewhere in the vicinity of Tibet, the Himalayas, which is complete, it's like this beautiful, fertile valley area, completely surrounded by mountains, so it's really hard to invade. And so it's very peaceful and kind of separate. And, um, and that back, you know, 2,500 years ago, the king of Shambhala uh, learned about the Buddha, who was teaching this meditation practice, this mindfulness awareness meditation, and how wonderful it was for people to actually be able to just find their own authenticity mm -hmm. in in this meditation, to to actually not be doing anything other than just becoming more and more fully who they were. Now and realize that, like you know, um, just for the audience out there in the world, um, you know, meditation is something that I think is very important in today's day and age, and it's always been important to us as human beings, is to slow down and become silent and hear the pattern of thoughts that come and go. And uh, I think it's so important um, to be stewards of that message um, as humans on this earth, teaching things and having a, a platform to, to like say the good truth. Um, it's important to always uh, preach that message of meditation. I, I find that very important because when I don't meditate, the days that I'm, 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 I'm not waking up in that space, my day is shit. It's, it's, it's my energy is different. The output's different than the input. And I think, the days that I wake up and the first thing I do is go and I meditate and I take my silent time to myself, um, it reminds me of who I am and how I'm going to serve the world. And so I just admire the fact that for 33 years you've continued to be on the path of uh, enlightenment, as we all are, um, but you've been dedicated. And it's important to recognize those that continue to push those things forward because we need to. And so uh, the how to now, now, just to, to segue, and like this is a very important moment, now how did all of this transition into meeting Joey. Like how did you meet Joey? Um, and what were the circumstances of that meeting? Well, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna add one more element to this, this yeah. path. Okay. Um, because it's really, for me, it's a key element. Yes. Like the meditation <coughs> is really valuable mm -hmm. and, and essential for sanity. Mm -hmm. It is. It's not totally, totally. It's like taking the garbage say. out. It is. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That's that's and and you know making space so that you can have a place to put it too. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's something else too. What what got me interested in medieval history and that first career I did was um, when I was a child hearing the legends of King Arthur mm. and the Knights of the Round Table, and I recognized something there that really touched me, really reached me about bravery, about sense of, of tenderness of heart, about mm -hmm. uh, a sense of sacredness 
that is not necessarily religious, mm -hmm. but of valuing humans and human dignity and human potential of people being protected who need to be protected and cared for who need to be cared for and just having a sense that um, you know, people deserve to have a good life and it's not enough to just let whoever you know, can beat up the most people be the one in charge, mm. but rather to have a world where there's justice. Do you, do you believe in, in the myth that they say about Shambhala will come back in times of nuclear holocaust to, to help the world? Is well, that, this, this is, I mean, this is, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, uh, yeah, and one of the things about the Shambhala community and the Shambhala teachings is that it's all about warriorship. Mm. It's all about the stuff that I resonated with as a child with King Arthur, and I wanted to study medieval history because I wanted to understand who are the people who think this is a great idea or thought so 500 years ago? Right. But then I discovered a community of people who think so right now mm. that I could live in rather than just studying about. And what part of what comes with that is the notion that at some point when it's most needed, these beings that actually embody those qualities can reappear to help us carry forward. Yeah. Um, I'm writing a book about that, but... Uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> What's but the name of that book? It's called King Arthur Returns. Oh, there you go. There it is. Bang. King Arthur Returns. <laughs> All right. <Loves> it. <laughs> and and so in meeting Joey, um, so we were introduced by a mutual friend because at the time Joey was fairly early in his path of awakening and things were a little chaotic and extremely intense and he was starting to get messages from yeah, I just, you know, I'm not going to overplay that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was listening. And, uh, but he's found. And, you know, so he, Joey was getting some messages that my friend felt like she knew who these were coming from. Mm -hmm. They were coming from Trungpa Rinpoche. And she felt like, well, I actually, you know, met Trungpa Rinpoche, spent a little time. Well, he was still alive. He died in 1987, so it was he drank, him, he drank himself. Yeah, how did he? Because it's always, I've heard so many different stories about how he died. What, what did, what's your version of it? Uh, well, I mean, you know, he, uh, he did die of alcohol-related issues. Um, that always, I've asked you about this many times because I had right. my own bouts with alcohol right. and right. addiction. And I always felt that that was something I did to self-medicate myself from probably incoming right. information. Because it makes you feel scattered if, you, if you're not... Yeah, yeah. No, understanding what, what it is, but how somebody of that being enlightened like that could do that didn't. I did, it, it was hard for me to understand, and yeah, that. Do you know what I'm saying? Even now, even trying to articulate what I'm saying, it's like one thing that doesn't match with the other. Mm -hmm. It's Absolutely. two polar mm -hmm. opposites. Well, it depends. Yeah, I mean, this is a matter of you know how you look at it, what your mm -hmm. perspective is on this. I mean. One of the reasons I wanted to introduce that thing about warriorship is because I think not only is it what drew me into the Shambhala community, but it's also, in a sense, how I see you, Joey, in terms of the warriorship of being authentically who you are, having the experience you have, not shying away from it. You know, that that's genuine warriorship. It's not fighting against something, but rather having the, the courage to actually take this step and then the next step and the next step when you know that you're walking away from everything that ever meant anything to you into a direction that you don't understand and yet knowing that's the right way to go 
and taking all the risks and taking all the taking all the heat and still doing it anyway because it's the right thing to do and that's mm. warriorship and so that's what Chukam Trungpa did as well you know he did what he had to do and how that works with the alcohol uh, consumption you know it's like I can't judge it you know I can say if as a, as a moral value that kind of alcohol consumption doesn't seem right on the other hand you know it didn't seem to affect the way he treated people mm. didn't seem to affect the way he conducted himself except that you know there were times when he was you know physically affected but he was a lot more affected by the fact that you know when he was in his early 20s he drove a car into a joke shop in Newcastle upon Tyne in England and came out with basically he paralyzed. He through, through the glass? Right through the glass, right through the front of the, the shop and was so badly injured that he was paralyzed on his right side for the rest of his life. Wow. So, you know, in terms of physical impacts, you know, uh, the, 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 the alcohol was... Almost like a pain sedative for him? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, mean can't, yeah. I can't say what his experience was. Right. What I can say is that he had some pretty drastic experiences in his life. Some of them were self-inflicted. But they didn't seem to affect the way in which he taught. They didn't seem to, to affect the way in which he treated people. And that's, to me, important because it makes, it makes for me the alcohol consumption non-issue. Because if, in fact, he consumed a lot of alcohol that really caused him to be abusive, it really caused him to be harmful to people, it caused him to lose his focus and not be present with what he was doing, then I'd say what you just said. No, right. these things are incompatible. But the fact is that it, nobody I know who ever spent time with him, and I know a lot of people who spent a lot of intensive time with him, ever said that the alcohol really changed the way that he conducted himself. You know, right. a, a, and so, so to me, it's not something that, not something that troubles me particularly because it seems like he was able to maintain himself and, and keep his balance through all mm -hmm. that. Um, but it does raise issues, and he, and he clearly knew it would. You know, was, I mean, you know, he understood that this was very controversial, and he, there were other controversial things he did as well, as you say, the, the bad boy right. of Buddhism. And he did it anyway, because for whatever reason... He did like it his way. He did it the way he had to do it. Mm -hmm. And nobody else had the courage or the vision to take the path he took in terms of really opening up Tibetan Buddhism to the Western world. And, and as he said a number of times, the way he taught his students was basically the way that he was taught. I mean, not quite, because he was beaten when he was a child. So mm -hmm. He did not beat his students. But in terms of the level of teachings that he shared. Because a lot of Tibetan Buddhist teachers, they don't actually share the real stuff. They do things that are kind of exotic and colorful and ceremonial and mm -hmm. they'll have you chant in Tibetan. So you have no idea what you're saying. And it's very uh, dramatic and it's very entertaining. But it's not really like you're actually fully understanding and relating to what you're doing and he made sure everything got translated into english and then some things got translated 
into Spanish or French or whatever, so others could enter in as well. But he really wanted to make sure everybody he was teaching understood what was being taught, and, and everything started with meditation. Everything started with being mindful. How am I in this moment? What, uh, what's going on? You know, where's my mind? You know, where's my body? Uh, you know, instead of skipping over that step to, yeah, let's get to the fun, exciting stuff. Hey, let's get to tantric sex. You know? Yeah, ah. that's what I'm about. Yeah, let's get to that. Do <laughs> <laughs> you compare Shambhala to King Arthur's, to, you know, those stories are very similar. Yes, they are very They're similar. very similar. Absolutely. And, yeah, and in fact, there's a whole also, you know, set of kings of Shambhala who have the kind of legendary quality Mm-hmm. Of King Arthur and the Gesar, the Gesar is different. Gesar is the king of Ling, right? And he is. He does he mm, oversee? He may be actually a, a sort of somewhat historical figure, but they've like totally blown him out of proportion. But yeah, he's also kind of an, a similar to to Arthur. In fact, Trungpa Rinpoche had. Well, I'm trying to count properly. Okay, anyway, he had three sons biological sons mm-hmm. and uh, the first of those sons is his successor as the head of Shambhala uh, but the third one is named Gesar Arthur Stop. his first name is Gesar and his second name is Arthur he was your teacher wasn't he? he was and, uh, and, and a very colorful guy <laughs> indeed no. but he made a movie by the way yeah, toku, toku. toku, yeah. Yeah, right, about actually being a Toku because, in fact, he is supposed to be the rebirth of his father's teacher. Toku. Now, when did that movie come back out? back as your own father's teacher. So. Yeah, I mean, that will be very, very, very weird. Um, <laughs> now, 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 coming back to, to you know, Joey's awakening and, and, right. and the things that, that he encountered and what he saw, felt, and kind of was going through, how did right. you assess things? Like, where when everyone around him was saying, this man is crazy, this man is delusional, he's losing his mind, what were you there as a, as kind of like, because you were the one that was like, hey, no, I understand what's going on fully. Um, so how did you kind of address that? Well, I mean, that, it, it's sort of, you know, I, I, I listened. Mm-hmm. And to fully understand that, at the time, the most important thing in my life was my four kids and my wife. Mm-hmm. and. I was faced with this new world that just opened up because I was used to living a certain way. The sun comes up, it rises, it sets. You know, people talk about people on the other side, but it's in movies. Mm-hmm. But when it happens, it will f- it, it it will it it will just it will set you in a different direction. And if you don't have people to talk to, so lucky I had Gregory to go to because mm-hmm. I didn't have I didn't know what a conscious community was. I didn't understand. None of that. The stuff I'd seen in movies, that was about as far as it went. Never even read a book about it. So to have him and to be able to go and talk to him was my saving grace. Or I probably would have drove a truck off a cliff because I felt like I was going crazy. And that's where I feel like it's like where spirituality meets mental illness. Where Where is that? You know, where does that? Mm-hmm. It's blurry. It's very blurry. It's a fine line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and because, well, in terms of, of the intensity of the experience of going somewhere that people don't generally go with their minds and their consciousness. Um, 
I mean, what we call mental illness is really just, uh, should I say, when people become unable to actually handle their experience. Hmm. You know, mm. if you can handle your experience, it's not mental illness anymore. Mm. You know, it might be a little dysfunction here and there, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's like a real uh, sort of the, the, the fundamental test is can you, you know, can you handle being you? And so you can, you know, two people can have the same experience. One of them is going to be able to handle it, and the other isn't. And you appear to look crazy or and schizophrenic, and or yeah, right, they label right. you quick. Right, exactly. No, no, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's a, you know, it's in a sense, it's no different than physical experience. Where okay, two people get the same, you know, virus, mm-hmm. and one of them it's like okay, you get over it in a week, and the other one's like in the hospital for three months. Mm. You know, it's like that's you know, wh- are you susceptible? Are you vulnerable? Are you? Do you have what it takes? to have the equilibrium to handle this experience, hmm. you know. <laughs> Do you feel that Western medicine is equipped for it? Equipped. Well, it, let's put it this way. There are people who are in, you know, practicing Western medicine who are capable of understanding things that are, you know, beyond the, you know, cut and dried. Mm-hmm. But Western medicine as a whole, as a sort of institution or an industry, whatever, um, isn't equipped to handle it because it's based in a, a sort of empirical, you know, evidence-driven scientific model. Unlike, say, medieval European medicine or Chinese medicine or Tibetan medicine, which are based, in, uh, which which are faith-based, and also relate to, um, I mean, literally astrology. Like, mm, yeah. you know, it, it's it's really like everything's connected together. You know, the holistic view is not just the whole of your body, but it's like the whole of your spirit and the way your spirit and your body connects to the earth and connects to the sky and connects to everything around you. And that tradition is alive many places in the world, including the Western world. But look what China does to Tibet. I feel like Westerners are doing the same thing, but they hide it better. Because I went to mental institutions and the first thing I was talking about was schizophrenia. Mental illness, and they wanted me on medication. That was that was oh my yeah, path. Sure. But like you just said, it's probably one of the most amazing thing that a human can go through. You become more connected to the planet, th- your fellow person, and it's really the most amazing thing you could feel. Right. But for me, the, I, I had nowhere to turn. I was going to these places because I wanted to be helped. Right. I wanted to go back home. Right. I know. You know, I was like, please, just, I just, I just want to get back home and. The thing was, as they said, if you don't take this medication, you c- she I said can't you can't it. go back. And then I was there, and they said, you right. need to take it. Or mm. yeah. you get 5150 turns into a 5250, they go up. So now you're in a 15-day <laughs> hold, and if you don't take the medication, now you're awarded the state. Now, you know, you have to take that medication. And I, I didn't feel that I needed to be on it. I was self-medicated my whole life. I drank, you know, right. mm. I, I, I'd done it. And this was like the first time I was like, well, wait a second. I've never done that. I've been like, give me the, give me the shit. Come on, I want more. Yeah, let me have some of that. Yeah. So I can just sit in here and not, you know, they numb myself to yeah. it. But, uh, but I really felt so sane and looking at everybody else and they were like, you're acting so different. And I was like, you guys are all acting the same. This is the, you, you know, and I didn't, and I had no like perception because the closest people in my life that I trusted we're not understanding it because of the way they saw me, yeah. the way they were used to seeing me. That was like really kind of taking and, you know, taking and taking and taking. Yeah. Because that's really kind of what we see. And I know I wanted nice shoes. 
And but after you start to see that there's a difference and that it's not us and that we're not in control whatsoever, then all of a sudden you start to feel grateful for any information that you get because you know it's not coming from you, mm -hmm. you know, because your ego wants to take it and run it straight through, you know, like that's all mine. Yeah. I did it, you know, yeah. but it's it's not. And I think that change. It helped me perceive the world differently. Me, mm -hmm. I, fi I, I, I finally fell in love with myself. And it was right when I did that. I remember I called my mom, like, Mom, what's up? I love you, Mom. I love you so much. She's like, are you high? <laughs> yeah, but Mom. I love you, Mom. <laughs> yep, I love you. <laughs> but it was funny because I felt like when I was able to release that, that victim bullshit you carry around, that I was able to love myself and it was able to start loving other people. And it was really, it just clicked. And it was almost like I found something and I wanted to share it with everybody. But it, I was looking a little kooky doing it because I was so excited. And I usually hid those feelings before, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's like how I see it is that um, the world wants us in a box before they put us in a box. And so it's like it kind of, it keeps everything exactly how the powers that be want it. Um, you know, keeps us kind of in this lost story of trying to find something. Everything is already inside of us. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's why I have found so much value in surrounding myself around people like a Greg Rubin, and like a Joy Nutolo, who have had such a storied life, but have found such, a, such an honest path, um, such a path of service. And it's like that coming to moments, those awakening moments that we have where we recognize our oneness with the world, our connectivity with every single thing that's a part of the human experience, that's a lovely feeling. Mm. And I had that feeling at Lake Powell. Um, and it's one of those things that you can't truly control. It's like you just want to express it. And that's the freedom and the joy that comes with um, realizing and surrendering to the awakening process. And that's what I'm finding because when I lost my brother, once again, I realized that there was a gift in that loss that wasn't necessarily, it, it was light. Um, and I was able to understand the depth of the human experience better because I'm now going through it. And, you know, and, and, and that really brings me to the next point of like, you know, right now we're in a space and a time in, in, in industries in the world where spirituality is being called almost prophetized as far as every company is now bridging these gaps, trying to. Um, because they see that there is a profit margin attached to it um, from my perspective and that there is something that also can be done that's positive. They see the double-edged sword. It's how Buddhism affects pop culture. Yeah, like how did like... And how like, that kind of shoots in there. Because, I mean, when I, when I think of Buddhism and when I talk to my homies and we talk about Buddhism, it's always in the lens of, oh, what, what's the name of the Buddhist? Or this, this rapper's a Buddhist. Or, you know, this icon's a Buddhist. And I think... Rick Rubin. Rick, yeah, and, and like that's where we find our, our comfort with these, these, these disciplines because for people who, who, who come from certain communities, there isn't an access point to some of this knowledge. Um, there's almost like a, a wall. Um, and some of it is a self-created wall, um, but a lot of it is already conditioned. And so we don't see like, oh, there's, oh, we can be, oh, we can do this and do that. It's like, no, you're going to do this. You're going to be this. And I think exploring the space of Buddhism um, is what we discussed earlier. Um, at the at gratitude and just understanding like there's such a beautiful path of oneness that exists with everyone and a path of um, kind of least resistance um, and like that's what we're all looking for and searching for and in pop culture we see that all these people we look up to 
There's things in, like, yeah, undertones you know, in movies. Everything. Like Star Wars. I'm everything, sure whole... yeah. And so what have you seen in pop culture from being a Buddhist, you know, that kind of like lets you know that we're going in the right direction or that we're, something's happening? You know, what have you seen in, in, in your years? Well, I mean, you've already, both of you just been naming some of the, you know, those various characters or, mm-hmm. you know, in music, in movies, you know, TV and so forth, and, and you know, the Star Wars under layer. I mean, one of the things uh, it sort of jumps out if you know uh, sort of some of the basic terms of, of Buddhism, but, but at least of Ajahn Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism is, is the term Skywalker. <laughs> um, is the Luke. translation of a Sanskrit word. Well, there's a, a female version and a male version. And the male version is Daka, and the female version is Dakini. And it literally means Skywalker or Sky Dancer. Mm. And it's a certain kind of, should we say, non physical being. Mm. It could be physical, but, you know, it's mostly non physical who, you know, has certain powers and inspiration. I mean, one of the things about Buddhism is that all these things, these deities, these special beings, probably don't have a separate existence. You know, it's Explain not that. like it's not like in Hinduism okay. where you know a god is like an actual thing. And yeah. You know, and no, in, in Buddhism it's more like it's really mostly an evocation of your own consciousness that you're looking to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, I mean, if you're really unsophisticated, you know, Buddhist, you could be saying, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, praying to the guru and to the, the deity and so on. I hope they all help me. But anyone who's actually entering into Buddhist practice in a, uh, a deeper way, the kind of way we're talking about here, where you really begin to understand the connections between everything and doing the meditation and really beginning to get to know yourself, mm-hmm. what you find is the point of these deities is not that it's something that's out there that's going to save you or make your life better so much as it's in you. And that, that's something you were just saying earlier, that, uh, you know, it's already in you. All you're doing is trying to make contact with that, hmm. trying to bring it out. And it really helps to have, you know, the picture on the wall, so to speak. <laughs> it helps to have something you can look at and say, ah, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of find it in yourself. But, uh, and they sort of recognize it. Oh, yeah, it's going to be like that. But really the bottom line is, you're, you're looking for you. And so in pop culture, um, as people in certain walks of life mm-hmm. are, you know, I mean, if you're an entertainer, you're, you're close to the edge. And we talked before about the edge between awakening and mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that describes like 50% of the people in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think, I think it's, it's, it's something that, it's something you said earlier that was so, uh, you were talking about the fact that um, it's easy for people in Hollywood to become channels because they're they're really emptying out their personalities in the characters that they play. Right. And so it's like they kind of become um, so open to anything. Right. And they can take them this way or that way. Yep. And I think that's why we find such psychosis mm-hmm. in pop culture mm-hmm. um, because they're really emptying out so much of their creativity, so much of everything into their artwork, into their craft. Mm-hmm. And so they're left empty, like Michael Jackson was left empty. Right. And so anything came in. Yeah. And how, what, what do you think is important for us as stewards of pop culture, especially me, I'm 31. I look at myself as a pop culture steward. And, and you as well, I mean, you know. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is like um, something that we can 
use as a tool to help kind of balance that. Because I think right now we see an imbalance in pop culture of um, just darkness um, and things coming in that we don't truly, um, we aren't able to always understand and contain. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do you think is a way of helping us kind of understand how to honor um, these gifts that the universe and that God has given us to be these characters and to be pop ultra icons? Um, how, you know, what do you think is a tool to help just balance out? Because the, these, these I, I work with many artists. Um, I work with Mike Posner. He's one of them. He's walking across America right now. Um, I work with Grizz, who's a DJ. And these guys are big and famous, and they, they, they sometimes feel they have this weight to carry. Um, and now that they've gotten into meditation, like I said, Mike's walking across America as a pilgrimage. You know, it changed everything. You know, there are two people in my life as pop culture icons that I've seen when, when investing energy and time into meditation and self-care practices. Um, their art has gotten better. Um, their health has gotten better. Their, their soul has gotten cleaner. Um, and they're now really answering the call. And I just really find it beautiful to see that. So as someone that works with these people and is always trying to help them understand the, the, the depth of life beyond the art, what do you think is just a tool to, like, like I said, just balance them out? Wow. I, you know, I don't know if I could be any more eloquent than that, but um, <laughs> it's just, I think there's, there's a lot of tools that are available. Um, I mean, meditation is something that, you know, anybody can use any time that they've got a few minutes to just sit down and view themselves. But, but in some ways, that's what it's all about. I mean, once again, coming back to the notion of authenticity, being genuinely who you are. And being genuinely who we are, it, it means taking off all those layers of, you know, our construction of who we think we should be. Mm. You know, all our sense of image, all our sense of, ambition and so forth that you know or the things we don't live up to the things we're running from whatever that might be the more that we can help anybody to actually cut through that and cut right back down to their own heart their own mind their own goodness their own sense of of balance and it's like you know if you don't care about yourself nothing anybody else offers you is going to do you any good because you won't be able to tell the difference between the things that are helpful and the things that are hurtful. Hmm. And, mm. and so just helping people to find their own, their own love of themselves, their own care about themselves, their own sense of being worthwhile, just you know, without having to add stuff. No, you don't have to be funny for us to love you. No, you don't have to be beautiful for us to care about you. No, you don't have to be brilliant us to think you're worthwhile and i think that's what mm. i'm finding in social media because once again as a 31 year old um social media is so relevant to my generation and it's produced so much hides of success and also lows of pressures of being or fitting into some type of model of a human and you know it's it's, it's almost it's almost impossible to measure up um in, in that world and so also you know, what tools do you have to kind of, you know, beyond meditation and like, what, what do you do? As I, as I asked you earlier, as, as, a, as a daily practice, you know, you said it changes daily, but what's something b b besides meditation that kind of anchors you into understanding the depth of your own existence and where you are in life? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, kind of a kind of mindfulness meditation practice is a really great base, but it's not necessarily empowering. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's empowering in the sense that you're 
taking control of the moment. You mm-hmm. know, you're actually making space for yourself, and that's essential. But it doesn't necessarily make you feel like you can, you know, sort of do the next thing. It's just more like, okay, I, I know what's coming up. I know how I feel. You know, and eventually you can build some confidence in that. But there are other practices that, that I have, you know, that are part of the Shambhala tradition, which, which are not, in fact, entirely Buddhist. They're, some of them are from kind of the indigenous or shamanistic traditions mm. in Tibet. And, and, and really they, what they have to do with fundamentally is a sense of joining the, the power of earth and the solidity of earth, the way in which earth holds us up with the power of heaven and sky mm. and the openness, the possibility, the, the immense energy of sky and, and having those things meet in our own hearts mm. where we are right there at the center of that meeting of the power of the sky and the power of the earth. And any time you can bring those things together, it is so empowering and it's so centering. And there's so much of a sense of, I mean, it may or may not be dramatic. You know, you might have a, 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 a lightning bolt moment or you might just be like, oh, well, at least I can breathe out now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are tools like that which are really valuable f- in the moment. And it's like it doesn't take, doesn't take you know, like any time at all. Like you can, it, you, it could be like 10 seconds worth of that consciousness of, openness to the sky and feeling the, the substance and strength of the earth and then just bringing those together in your heart and it's like ah that's uh, it's, it's really strengthening the sense of, of spirit in us I feel it right now All right, <laughs> <laughs> feel strong in my spirit um, you know I, it's, I love the way you speak about spirituality um, because it's adjustable it's not this right or wrong it's not this um, yay or nay or, or left or right there's just this way mm-hmm. and if we can all just embark upon the, the way our own way whatever mm-hmm. that, that, that way is yeah. um, and surrender into that path I think we'll find a lot more joy in our lives um, and we can share that and express that because um, that's really very important to me and in, 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 into how I live my life is that um, I express authentically my joy mm-hmm. what I'm feeling in the present moment um, which could be anything but for the most part because of the practices that I've been hanging on to, um, I've been pretty joyful. And it's nice to, to express that sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, he's got a smile. Joey's kind of smiling. He ain't smiling. Um, <laughs> but now, how, as, as a bridge, um, just as far as like taking it back to understanding what Joey went through, because I think it's important to establish this, a foundation of just understanding mm-hmm. yep. people's kind of awakenings, um, because that's what this podcast is about. Right. Um, we're really sharing our own stories to help others out there in the world understand their own awakening. Yeah. Um, so when you witness joys, once again, because I just want to, I want to clarify for myself, <laughs> um, how did you feel as far as like, you know, what did you, because you, you share that, you kind of confirm that the, the, the voice that was speaking to him and sharing messages with Trump Rumpache. Now, how did you know that? You know, how did, did, did you have a physical sensation? Did you, like, how did you understand that? You know that that was happening. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to pick up on on what you're just saying about joy, and because one of the things that that you know anybody who's really genuinely has uh, an openness to spirituality is keenly aware of how much suffering there is, hmm. 
and you know, and one of the things we all want to do is help alleviate that suffering and bring that suffering to to joy or at least contentment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things with, with joy, it's a joy with suffering because you know things are just like out of control. And you know, he was you know able to drive a car and you know talk in English, but you know it was it was really taxing. I mean, it's taxing his whole system, obviously, and and there was a lot of suffering in it. And but I also saw the joy of that energetic connection that he had. That you know through through the the suffering of how hard it is to handle that kind of intensity, that kind of potency, especially when you haven't been open to it your whole life, you know. And you've kept everything under control and really managed everything. And it was all kind of be like in service to some purpose and some intention. And, you know, that was all like you could, you know, and suddenly here he is and he's just opening it up. And it's just like, you know, lightning bolt right down the center of his being. And yet it wasn't just all, oh, my God, this is terrible. I don't know what's happening to me. I can't stand it. In the middle of that, there was all this, this thread of just real appreciation for what he was receiving. And so that's part of why I knew it was genuine. Yeah. It's because he wasn't just a victim. Mm. Uh, he was actually, you know, a willing participant. But also, in terms of specifically with Trungpa Rinpoche, although I was not somebody who spent a lot of time around Trungpa Rinpoche, I did have some direct contact with him. As I said, I know a number of people who, who did spend a lot of time around mm -hmm. him. And I've read a lot of his his writings, I've heard a lot of his talks and so forth that were recorded. Everything that Joey passed to me that he was hearing was consistent. And since I had no reason to believe that Joey was ever exposed to anything Trumpeche wrote or said, uh, and, and nobody was coaching him, you know, he's just spontaneously experiencing this and then sharing what's coming through to him. And so, that, and that's continued to be true throughout. You know, there's been nothing that he's ever said that struck me as, oh, well, that's a false note. That, that mm -hmm. doesn't sound right. That, now he's just making it up or something like that. No, it always seems like, you know, either he's genuinely hearing from Chugyam Trungpa or he's just in touch with something which kind of replicates that. And it doesn't matter to me which is which because it's, for all practical purposes, the same thing, as mm -hmm. long as it's the genuine kind of voice. It doesn't matter whether it's an actual dead person who's talking to him or if it's just some kind of echo, you know, that's in the... Ethers. In the yeah. ethers, <laughs> you know, it's and, and he's just hearing the echo yeah. because it's the message that we all need to get. And it doesn't really matter in some sense whether the messenger is somebody we know or somebody we like or somebody who's still alive, as long as it's genuine. And feeling that it's like being, it's like being in a bridge mm -hmm. and on this side, the most important thing in your life is on this side of the bridge, but something else opens up on the other side that you can't ignore. It's, you can't, and you're in the middle and you don't know which way to go, but the mm -hmm. most amazing thing is right ahead of you, but you're about to walk away or be separated from something else that you don't know what to do. So I, you don't know which way to go. And so the only way I could go is go forward and just pray that I wasn't crazy because I felt it felt so real to me and I, I, I just had to do it, you know? So I just put my head down and I used to say, oh, I lost my family. I didn't lose them. I was separated because of something I believed in. 
and I, I truly didn't believe I needed medication. I just, I needed to understand what was happening and for someone to, uh, to listen, to really listen, because I think everybody wanted to tag me uh, with schizophrenia or any other times of me mental illness that, that like I really would, at the time, I, I, w I was about to start lying about things because I wanted to manipulate my, my way back into the house. Mm -hmm. And I almost did it, but I felt if I do that, then I'm kind of going against what I, what, I, what I led this for. Like I'm doing this because I want them to believe what I'm saying no matter what. So I, I left everything and gave everything because I wanted them to believe. I'm like, well, then here, take everything. And then JC goes, now I know you're crazy because you would have <laughs> never done that. You wouldn't give us everything. So there was nothing I could have really said. I just was in this place and I couldn't be a victim. I just had to own it, you know, and just go, okay, I believe this. I got to march forward, but without people like Gregory with Tage, I don't, you know, you really, it's, you need somebody. And I, I think if you go to a mental institution and you see these are people that don't have people, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying everyone in there, but I was able to talk to some of these people and they're not crazy and they're getting the shit kicked out of them and they're saying weird shit. Yeah. I was saying weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, because you, you don't know what's real or not real. Yeah. So, you know, first thing I'm like, oh, I'm dying. Hey, Dad, I'm coming. Uh, this is what we're going to... Because why would people start communicating with me? Must, yeah. must be close to that. I must that. be closest Stop. to the edge. Something's yeah. going. So you go, your mind takes you through all these things the way, the way your mind will. Everyone's different. There's a different lens. So it, it will start to create what it thinks is happening. So a lot of the times I would actually look up to the right as if somebody was there and start talking up in the air. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. I would look up like this and, and then I would do these like these hand signals. Mm -hmm. Like even now I do it like a, and I didn't know, but it felt, it just felt so normal to me. Mm -hmm. So I had to start hiding that. And then I started doing hand mudras. Mm -hmm. And when I did, I'd start seeing images and I get goosebumps and my wife's like, what are you doing with your hands? And so I had to start sitting on my hands <laughs> at home I just sit on them because I, I'd start doing these mudras and I didn't know, but it would start to feel I would get hot everywhere. I get goosebumps and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a sign language of some mm -hmm. sort. And so finally I just said, ah, fuck it. I was just walking through Malibu with mudra, just going for it down the street. And they're like, there's the crazy dude. And I just, owned, I didn't know to own crazy or not, but I just felt like I'm just going with it. I just got to go. And I remember I took that Patagonia bag and I left. I never went back home. And that was in the middle of the bridge is going like, I'm not, I knew at that point, I'm, I'm not going back there. Not, not like this, not the yeah. old Joey. Yeah. Gone. And, and I felt like he's like Gregory explained. It's probably, it really was the most amazing feeling you could have but you're about to lose something that's so important and you're torn and you're like, how do I get to that side? Well, it's, 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 I mean, having been a participant in, um, in Joey's story, um, and seeing, uh, all the elements that come along with trying to understand your own awakening. Um, it can be hard. I mean, I think about the homelessness. I think about the homeless people on the street right now. I think that some of these people are some of the most enlightened beings that we have on this earth. But because they didn't have a community of support to actually understand their own enlightenment or help them direct towards some type of reference point to help them understand what they are labeled crazy, they label themselves crazy, and now they're on the streets acting out that expression. And it's, it's, it's hard sometimes because I'm a deep empath. Uh, I learned this recently because I finally 
got into astrology. Everybody get into astrology. It's beautiful. Um, I, my, my rising is in, is in, is in cancer. Um, so I'm an empath. And I'm really like, I'm really like Joey. You're like we're both empathic. Um, we want to see equality around the world. And that's something that we should all share. We should all share in that regard. Because, we all can. Yeah, we all can. And I feel like that, that's what Buddhism is about. Um, that's what Kundalini is about. It's about an energy that we can share collectively, um, that we all have and that we all know. And it's just coming back to that knowing um, as a reference point for everything. It's like I really have become aware of the disciplines that help us come back to that knowing. And I think having practiced Kundalini, um, done massive amounts of yoga, and also have dabbled in and out of certain Buddhist circles um, or teachings, it's, uh, it's apparent that there is oneness around us. There is something that we can come in contact with that helps us understand this whole life thing way better. And that's what we're here for. That's why we're doing this. That's why the space between exists. Um, because it is that space between heaven, man, and earth. Like that's, that, that, that's what we're dancing between. It's that balance. It's that balance. You know? And I think it's a dance. And we have to be able to kind of be flowy and fluid. And that's what I'm learning from just listening to all you guys today, um, is that there's a fluidity that we have to establish in our existence that allows us to have these lessons and downloads. Because if we get rigid into these structures, um, we'll lose our, our channel. We'll lose that kind of tapped-in channel. And so um, as just something to kind of capture all of the energy of today's moments and today's conversations, um, I would love to get just a final quote. Because you had, Rose told me something beautiful that you said to her. I don't even know. It was about past and future. And I just want to hear it. It was, it was, I, I don't know exactly what it was she said, but it was so spot on. I wrote it on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Pass and, but, but please, can you just share the quote? I just want to hear what it is. Cause yeah, yeah. really. I, 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 I'd like to hear it too. Um, <laughs> probably is. So the best things I say, you know, they just come out. So it's not like I planned it. So like, oh, did you record that? <laughs> but I think what, I think what it may have been is just the idea that we, you know, we, we come from our past, mm -hmm. and everything we do is is coming out of the past. Like mm. it, this is just, in some ways, what this is just like it's obvious when you see it this way. Like it all comes out of the past, and and we're we're in the present. We can't help. That's all we got. You know, is this moment, and this moment is the present. But we're always facing in the direction of the future. Uh, if in fact we're doing this in a way that is likely to work, mm -hmm. but so many of us are actually kind of turned around and we are facing toward the past and we keep trying to plan for what happened already hmm. and and we're and we're remembering the future we're remembering all the things that we want to do <laughs> remembering all the things we have ambitions for you know it's sort of like oh yeah when i'm this it'll be like this and it's just like you know like you got a whole memory of all the times when i was like enlightened <laughs> or you know, or, you know, I got a billion dollars or yeah. whatever it is. And, and it never happened. And it's probably never going to happen, especially if not if you're, like, backing into it. we got to go f into the future facing forward mm. and bring our past with us because we can't, we can't get away from it. Mm. It's like every single cell in our body carries all of our ancestors. I mean, you think about it. It's just amazing. It's like literally... Every single one of your ancestors is in your body right now with your DNA. And if you know who <laughs> they are, yo, yo, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and you can draw on that. 
Yeah. You know, it's like all those generations, all those thousands of years that got you here. And here you are in this moment, alive. And then there's all the possibilities of what's coming next. You make it sound so exciting. You do. <laughs> I'm like, let's go right <laughs> now. I'm well, ready. Exactly. <laughs> let's roll. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think that that's the quote right there. Uh, I'm not going to say anything. I don't have a quote. Um, I think that this 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 has been such a beautiful opportunity to share space and time with you, and to hear your amazing eccentric story about just life. I'm um, having lived for now 67 years. Um, on this earth. Which 37? Is a, what'd you say? <laughs> yeah, we'll 40, 40, 40, 42, 42. Um, but having been here and lived a life of um, almost like a, a fairy tale um, out of a book, um, I think it's amazing to have heard in person some of these stories that connect me to what I researched, but also just understanding that, like, like I told you before, the path of enlightenment is so wide. Um, it's so open to us every single day at every moment. And it's up to us to choose take the journey and to continue to choose to take the journey is, is like very courageous and that's that warrior mm -hmm. um, and like uh, my homie Posner said this today as he's on his 30th day of his walk across America which is crazy to me but he said that it's not about being happy all the time that's not what life's about mm -hmm. it's about showing up and often you know you show up sometimes in the murk in the mud of your life and that's what provides for the next space or the next kind of moment of joy that you can have it's not about always trying to atta attach yourself to this, you know, this happiness or this joy or this state of being. No, it's like if you can show up in every situation um, as yourself authentically, then I think you can provide yourself a, a, a larger territory to be happy with. And that's what I've noticed, um, and that's what you guys today have helped me with. Um, but I just think as a, as a last point of this show, of this episode, um, I want us all to just finish off with the collective Shambhala. Can we just say Shambhala? Shambhala. 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 I'd like to say Hi. Shambhala. to you, Gregory. Shambhala. Thank you as a friend. Thank you for your warriorship. And thank I mean, I, would, I, I don't even know what I would do without you, seriously. Because there were so many times when that got so difficult, those, those turns, and I'm not trying to play victim, but just saying that by having that, that fountain of information to, to go to, and it, it helped me with my life. It really did. That, that could have went another way, you know? It could have went a different way. I could have been inside the mental institution. And luckily I'm not. Mm -hmm. and, and I understand what's happening because I've had the, you know, the, the grace of having somebody to help me and to, to walk through that, this path. And it's, it's not easy. It's not hard. It's, just, it's, it's beautiful. It's different. It's just, it's just, it's different for everybody, but it's necessary, I think, to to have somebody when something like this happens to be able to talk to because it's 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 scary, it's it's exciting, it's different, but it's important. It's really important. I feel and thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I want a handshake too. Give me that little hand. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. Um, well, Sat Nam. Nam, guys. Um, well, that's today's show. We gotta go. Uh, we gotta get out of here. We gotta do something else. No, but uh, <laughs> today was amazing. Um, once again, Jossie Cunningham, your co-host of the Space Between podcast. Joey Natola. And Gregory Lupkin. Ooh, Greg got a little sultry voice there, Greg. Gregory Lupkin. <laughs> and we just want to say thank you guys for listening. And uh, Thank you. Satnam. Satnam. See you soon.